Hello. Passionate about sustainability, energy, and climate? You're in the right place. Welcome to Energetic. I'm Maureen Cornelis, and together we will engage with people who dedicate their lives to climate justice and making a just energy transition happen. They may be activists, scientists, policymakers, or other enthusiasts, just like you. Let the life stories and insights inspire you to build a better future for people and the planet. On today's episode, I have the pleasure of welcoming Giulio Mazzoli, an expert in sustainable transport, who is making huge strides towards a greener future at TU Dortmund University in Germany and as a visiting research fellow at the University of Leeds in the UK. With a passion for breaking down the barriers to sustainable and climate-neutral transport, including tackling the problem of transport parity and the over-reliance on cars, Giulio is leading the way in this vital area of research. He's making such an impact that he was even a contributing author to the IPCC Six Agreement report. So prefer to be inspired as we delve into the world of sustainable transport with Giulio Maccioli. Giulio, welcome to Energetic. Hi, thanks for having me. So Giulio, you're an expert in mobility and have worked on numerous and sustainable transportation projects. Can you tell us more about your journey, pun intended, and how you got involved in this space? Yeah, it happened a bit by chance, to be honest. I, I, I was studying sociology as a student. At some point, I had to do an internship. And there was a position open at uh, the department of Milan. And it was about designing a survey questionnaire for uh, mobility management. And I had no idea about the topic, uh, really, but I was studying urban sociology and I knew how to design a survey as a, as a sociologist in training. And then I realized I found the topic very interesting, uh, mainly because it's so locked in. That's what always fascinated me, that it's so, you know, it's so hard to get people... Uh, to shift away from cars. And I guess I found that very sociologically in a way that when you, when you study sociology, you learn to sort of question things that people take for granted and sort of imagine how things could be different, what, what they call sociological imagination. Just, you know, question the very premises of society and think, okay, that, that's the society I'm used to, uh, but how could it be completely different? Uh, there are some actual reasons why it became this way and not some other way, and we need to understand them. And I just thought everything that revolves around the car is is very much along those lines that it's taken for granted until you, until you stop doing it. And when you stop doing it, then you start seeing things in a very different way. So I guess that's what drove me to it. And then I wrote like my master thesis on it and my PhD thesis on it. And then it's all spiraled down from there, I guess. So what do you think really people, this kind of vision of mobility is so... Like this kind of unilateral vision of mobility is so ingrained in people's mind. And have you noticed throughout the years some some changes and also some trends? Yeah, maybe. Maybe it's it's more question nowadays than it was like 10 or 15 years ago. There's lots of more initiatives in cities, larger cities in Europe, trying to take space away from cars, for example. I don't think that was the case in 2008 when I started my journey. But yeah, it remains an, an uphill battle. And also often it requires really questioning the common sense. And people get very upset when you do that. That's one of the things that we used to learn in uh, sociology. That's one thing that they call like ethnometodological experiments, which is what these guys used to do in the early 20th century, is they, they try to deliberately break rules of everyday life. 
right? So stop queuing or not paying at a shop and then see what happens. Just to bring to light those rules that no one is saying explicitly all the time, but they're just there in our minds. And I think a lot of what we do with sustainable transport it is that way. So when you say, okay, look, like the, all those parking spaces, we could use them for something else. You know, you don't put your 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 fridge there. You you would never come to that idea. So why do you do it with a car? Uh, and when you do that, it's it's really the same thing. It's questioning common sense. And when you do that, people have a moment where they're taken aback and like, oh, wait a minute, no, 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 you're threatening my, you know, my ontological securities almost. And that's why you often get a lot of backlash. But I think we see more and more of that. Yeah, that's really interesting because you, you come as the second guest of a series on sustainable transport and sustainable mobility. Our previous guest, please um, catch up uh, to the listeners if you haven't uh, done so, told us about sustainable and shared mobility and how he also explained how different the, the, the landscape was about 15 years ago when he started to it's really interesting to have like the practitioner vision and and the researcher vision because as you just said things are changing maybe not so fast but they are still changing and we still need to assess how to make this change happen at a much faster space so can you tell us going back to uh, your work with the IPCC how come mobility and uh, sustainable transport why is it so important today? And why do we, as societies, do we need to address this as soon as possible? Yeah, so first of all, I have to say my, my contribution to the IPCC report was minimal. There's maybe a few lines in there, which I put over like a thousand pages. But I, I, I was invited to join a paper, which then sort of was used for the text of the report. And that paper was looking at trends in uh, emission, different sectors globally and in different world regions between 2010 and 2018. So the most recent trends, but also looking at the trends since 1990. And I was invited to comment on trends in transport and why that they are the way they are, <laughs> what we should or could do about it, perhaps. So the particular thing about transport there is that it's a sector where emissions have always increased and in all areas, even in world regions where, for example, in Europe, we have a decrease in, in, in emissions in, in the energy sector, in the building sector, and certainly in several European countries. But transport does not decrease, not even in those countries. I mean, there's lots of debates about growth, degrowth, and people often talk about decoupling. So countries that have keep growing their economies, but have started reducing their emissions, and there was a study about these countries, uh, the few countries that have actually reduced emissions, and they found that none of those countries had reduced transport emissions. So those reductions happened in sectors that are quote unquote easier, right? Like energy. So you, you decarbonize the grid, you stop burning so much coal, you bring some renewables in and so on. But transport is much more difficult. And the reason why, why it's difficult is that for a very long time, and that's still the case, any improvement on the technological front, so in terms of energy efficiency, in terms of carbon intensity, has been more than offset by increases in travel activity. So cars become relatively cleaner in terms of CO2 per kilometers, but we travel more and more by car over longer distances. And you know, at the end, like the, the amount of CO2 emissions is the product of those two quantities. And if one decreases, but the other increases, uh, then uh, total emissions may remain 
flat or even increase. And that's what's happened even in the best performing countries. And at the global level, it's absolutely booming. And so that's why transport is particularly sensitive because we don't seem to have found a sort of solution yet. Uh, technology is, is, has not been enough to date and may well continue to be insufficient to reduce emissions. So somehow people believe that with their more efficient cars that consume less, etc., they are having a better transport footprint. But since they move more, they increase their footprint. In the aggregate, yes. Okay. Okay. Wow. That's really fascinating. And I have seen on Twitter that you have something against SUVs. Are they one of the reasons, indeed? Yeah, well, in, in a way, the, the, there is a broader trend towards larger vehicles, and there are several reasons for that, some good, some bad. Some of the good ones is that uh, certainly, to some extent, the increase in weight is due to better safety. So um, we're less likely to die in road accident in most countries, in, in collisions between cars nowadays than we were in the 90s. And that's a good thing, but it came with a lot of added weight to the cars. That's probably something that you know we have to live with uh, or we want to have. But there's, to some extent, in more recent years, there's been a trend towards vehicles that are actually just taller version of, of previous vehicles. They're sort of pseudo SUVs that crossovers look like SUVs. They're just taller. And that's bad for uh, safety. Because uh, if a car hits you at a higher level, you're more likely to die as a pedestrian. You're also less likely to see people on the street, uh, children crossing in front of you and so on. And it's also bad for the environment because it comes with added weight and that added weight results in, in higher emissions. And for a few years, so the longer term trend is that emissions, CO2 emissions per kilometer have been decreasing for cars. But there were a few years between 2016 and I, uh, I think 2020 where they, they started increasing again and there was a trend towards SUVs. And now they're decreasing again because of there's, there's more and more AVs on the market. So to some extent, they have offset improvements in uh, engine technology and so on. So the engine requires less CO2, less, less fuel to move the same amount of weight. But since our cars are getting heavier, we have reduced emissions less than we could have if we had kept vehicles to the same size. And uh, it, it's interesting, if you look back at EU documents from the 90s, they had this ambition that they said, okay, we will reduce the size of cars. We will make cars smaller. And actually what happened is, is the complete opposite. We have made cars much, much bigger. SUVs are now the largest segment on the market. And uh, soon enough, I think like every car will be an SUV. So uh, I think that's where we had it. Yeah, that's really interesting and kind of uh, scary as well. I mean, it's also hard to understand or to, to comprehend why this has become such a, like SUVs or bigger cars have become such a massive trend. So who's guilty for that? Is it like the belief that safety was greater? Or, I mean, we still use our cars mostly for short journeys in town, etc. So, so maybe it's not uh, that the parameter, but as a sociologist, had the opportunity to really assess the reasons why people would choose such bigger, larger things over more agile and somehow eco-friendly cars? Yeah, no, I don't think there's that much research about it. But in general, if when I discuss these things on social media, there's always a big 
fight between people who blame it all on on demand, so on consumer consumer taste, consumer choices, and people who blame it entirely on supply. So it's 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 the the car makers, and I'm always a bit taken aback because to me, as a sociologist, it's always both. It's the way those two things interact. You can never you know blame entirely demand or supply, consumers or producers, structure or agency. So what I always found interesting is the interplay between both. But for more, most people, this is too, this is too centrist. No, they, they really want to take a position one way or another. So I think there are certainly factors uh, on, on both sides. On the consumer side, since, since you asked about it, I think one thing to keep in mind is that cars have sort of never been and, and probably will never be just seen uh, in a utilitarian way as ways of going from A to B. People don't see them that way. It's not the main selling point of a car. When you buy a car, does it bring me from A to B efficiently? That's one consideration among many. Uh, there are many other considerations, including like comfort during the trip, but also they're a bit more like clothes, you know, you wear them on the outside, you park them in front of their car. There's sort of a statement about yourself. I think all of us, including us, perhaps, I mean, I don't have a car, but if I had a car, I certainly wouldn't want to be seen in an SUV. Uh, and that wouldn't just be because of, of the environmental footprint, but also because it would be a statement about myself and my social milieu and so on, which I don't want to give. And, and conversely, for other people, they really want to be seen in SUVs uh, and they wouldn't want to be seen in a small car or they wouldn't want to be seen in a pink car or they wouldn't want to be seen in, a, in an electric car because uh, that would say something about themselves that, which they don't want to say. So they're, they're not like washing machines, you know, that no one sees, they, they're in our cellar and no one really cares what model we have. They're a bit more like clothes. All of us, we tend to care about our clothes. So I think the sort of image component is very powerful. And I think somehow the industry has managed to sell those cars as, you know, as symbols of a whole lot of things, including, I don't know, power, strength, assertiveness, uh, having made it in life or things like that. So it's like a status symbol somehow. In a way. But what I wanted to say that this is not just unique about SUVs, right? It, it's just the, 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 the nature of cars. I think most people who are around uh, on a Mercedes Smart, which is very small, they do want to give a statement about themselves as sort of flexible, sort of environmental person who does not care too much about, about those other things that people with SUVs care about. I think there's no escaping this game in a way. It's not, it's not just the people with SUVs who are sort of mad about status. It's all of us when it comes to cars. Yeah, and it transcends also political views uh, somehow. I mean, you can be uh, more oriented towards left and have and still ride an SUV. That's also the deal, isn't it? Yeah, that uh, that in a way it provides you with, you know, it, with a repertoire to 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 build a complex identity because some people want to be seen as you know the left person who's got an SUV because I'm a bit different from the regular left person. I'm not like you know, I don't want to be massified like the others i am my own unique individual and and we we build our own unique individuality through these things you know through just exposing things that do not entirely fit with each other and that way we make a statement about ourselves because we don't want to be the person who's you know like the the stereotypical person of one kind 
So I guess this is a game that we all play. And unfortunately, cars have just happened to play a big role in it. And so there's plenty of scope for selling and buying vehicles that are overdimensioned uh, as compared to what we would need in a utilitarian way to go from A to B. Yeah, yeah, I, know, I get it. And what about a collective modes of transportation? I mean, we will start with the, with the buses, but we can go until planes, of course. I mean, your research and your expertise also started with some kind of uh, the boom of the low-cost air flights in Europe with the EasyJet, Ryanair, etc. So have you also studied this, this trend? Yeah, that's something I've been uh, gravitating towards over time. Because at, at first it was all about cars for me. That was really what I was interested in. And then increasingly, I realized that, yeah, aviation is such a big part of CO2 emissions because that was my topic. And I realized that there is a strong element of locking there as well, but more in the making, you know, because the thing about cars, it's so hard to, to, you know, we've reached such high levels of car use that it's so hard to go back to the levels of car use that we had 30, 40 years ago. It would be seen as a, as a, as a, It's an extreme thing to do, even though we were able to do it 30 or 40 years ago, but we, we, we can't go back in a way. It's ratcheting up. And, and I think the same thing is happening with, with aviation, that new lifestyles are emerging based on the availability of, of cheap air travel. For example, within Europe, uh, I think we all anecdotally know people who live in one country and every two or three weekends, they're in another country for the weekend, go clubbing with their old friends there just taking advantage of uh, low-cost airlines. And these people typically are not people on low incomes. Uh, they're typically more like middle class or upper class, but they do take advantage of those very cheap deals. And I think in this way, the whole meaning of what it means to migrate from one country to another is changing because it used to be something where, you know, you really... Well, if you if you went to another continent, you were gone for good. You know, the, people wouldn't see you anymore, maybe once in the lifetime. If you went to Europe, it would be something where you would come, I don't know, for Christmas or for the summer, but certainly not 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 much more often than that. And now it's changed for a lot of people migrating to another country does not necessarily entail like breaking your, giving up your social networks in your country of origin. But that comes with a lot of air travel. And I think the more people get used to these new, these new ways of life, there is a constituency for cheap air travel. And so if in five, 10 years we say, wait a minute, we really need to tax air travel heftily because of climate change, then we will have this whole constituency going, no, wait, I can't. I'm used to go and care for my mother every, every two weeks. And you can't do that to me. That My whole life is based on that. And I think that's what we're building now. Uh, and this is fascinating from a sociological perspective. Um, worrying from a climate one. Indeed, but uh, there will be parties who tell you that uh, we are using sustainable fuels or it's uh, it's also a trend that exists. So, so, so that would help solve some of the problem. But you're not super tech enthusiast, are you? Oh, well, yeah, I, I suppose I come across as an anti-tech, but it's just, it's just because uh, there's too much, in my opinion, there's too much unfounded, unwarranted tech enthusiasm, right? Uh, that often tech optimism, technological optimism is blown out of proportion to just dismiss any concern about demand. So I'm very happy, you know, for cars to become cleaner, uh, for EVs to come on our roads and for um, 
e-fuels to be used in aviation if we can. But the thing is, those things will not be able to offset a, a big growth in demand. And I think this is like the underlying trend in transport. And it's it's much worse and it's even worse for air travel. So for air travel, our technological hopes are much smaller because we don't have something like EVs coming on the market. We don't have a really scalable technological solution right now. We may try and do our best over the next few decades, but it's it's very much up in the air. And at the uh, same time... Unintended. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, pun not intended. But uh, at the same time, we have absolutely uh, booming demand on, on uh, air travel. And so this results in growing emissions. And so the only way would be to try and curb demand, to keep it at least at the same level, to make sure that in 10 years we're not flying twice as much as we do today. But even that somehow comes across as radical with, with many policymakers, not, not necessarily so much with the public, I would say. And so there are not many initiatives that are being implemented to make sure that demand does not boom. Okay, so can you get back on this, the fact that the clash mostly comes from policymakers and not really from the public? What have you noticed in your industries? Are people willing to travel less or find alternatives, more sustainable solutions? Is that what you imply? Yeah, the thing with air travel is that unlike car travel, I mean, most people in European countries have and drive cars, something like 80% of households. Uh, and even those who don't drive cars, they, they, they somehow rely on others, like sometimes giving them a lift. So it's very pervasive. Everyone feels sort of, if we talk about doing something about cars, ev pretty much everyone feels like, oh, this might threaten me. Okay, they have an opinion. Exactly. Yeah. But if we're talking about air travel, in most European countries, 50% or, or more of the population does not fly in a given year. So in a country like the UK, where a lot of people fly, it's 50. In a country like France, Germany, and Italy, it would be more like something like 60 or 70. So it's a minority of people who fly in a given year. And it's even a smaller minority who fly frequently. So most people, when we talk about, yeah, let's tax flights more, they feel like, oh, okay, whatever. I don't fly as much. I mean, I might fly every couple of years, but yeah, it's no big deal. And there's a minority who feels like, oh, no, that this is important for me. And I think that's why in polls, for example, when they ask about higher taxing on air travel, there's usually plenty of support for it. For example, one thing that struck me was the, the, the Gilets Jaunes movement in France. It was I mean, it had many reasons, and you certainly know more about it than I do, but it was triggered by these uh, increase in, in diesel, taxes on diesel. But at some point, they came up with their own manifesto with demands, uh, what they wanted from the government. And one of their demands, interestingly, was higher taxes on aviation fuel. Because the idea was, well, let's not tax us, the common people. Let's tax the privileged people who fly. Uh, and was, there was a rationale to it. So I think there could be, uh, there is, uh, in the population as a whole, broad support. But I think in the media or among policymakers, there's often a lot of backlash and I think just speculating, I think the reason is that people who write on newspapers or people who are in politics, both because of their class status or the, because of their milieus, but also because of their jobs, they, they fly a lot. Uh, and that makes them have a whole different perspective on flying. Uh, I remember reading, for example, in Germany, there was a column in Die Zeit, which is a left-leaning, uh, left high-bro weekly. And she was saying, this person was saying, oh, no, we cannot do anything. You know, we, we shouldn't tax flights because otherwise, how could the journalists 
who lives in Hamburg and has to go to Munich for, for the day for work, how could she come back and put her kids to bed at night? It was pretty clear that this person was basically talking about herself, but she was just sort of generalizing her own her own work experience, which is very particular to the whole population. And I think there's maybe an element of that, that those privileged sectors who rely a lot on flying at present, they're a small group within society as a whole, but they are also those who make the opinion in a way. And so that's still a hurdle. In a recent paper, you called them that those who fly but never dry? Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that was a study where we looked at, yeah, I was curious about Anecdotally, I think I, I know many people who are very uh, sustainable in their uh, travel in daily life and cycle maybe or use public transport, but then fly a lot. And I was curious to know who, who these people were. And they was framed as a, as, a, as a study on high emitters. And we find that in general, people who have high emissions in transport or in general, they tend to be like in the middle-aged males with high income who live outside of cities and then have to rely on cars and so on. But if we look at this particular group, they have almost the opposite characteristics. They're more like, well, they're, they're still pretty affluent and, and wealthy, but they live in city centers. They tend to be more females. They tend to have migration background or, or have family abroad. So they're a pretty different constituency and, and, and maybe one that thinks of themselves uh, as environmentally minded and so on. Yeah, I can I can say that I totally recognize myself in this uh, like, uh, this type of character. And uh, also because I mostly have to travel for work and that supposes very short time to, to do everything. And I would tend to find excuses for myself because I know there are excuses. I could always take the train uh, to go from point A to C, but in the meantime, I have a small child, so I want to be home quite quickly and also to give uh, the change to my partner. So it's it's really about finding this middle ground. So uh, that's that's really super interesting. And, you know, I was also curious to, to know if you saw some trends that are more linked to post-pandemic and the fact that we are having way more meetings online, just like this one. Maybe uh, five years ago, I would have traveled to Dortmund to record this podcast and instead today we are recording it totally online. So has there been shifts in uh, air travel over over the past years? Have you noticed something like that? Yeah, it's a bit early to say because with the data, there's always a bit of a lag. So we're still working with data from before the pandemic or during the pandemic. Uh, but I think there, there's probably certainly with, when it comes to business travel, there's been a shift to more online meetings and that might reduce demand as compared to what it would otherwise have been. I think most projections of air travel see that you know it's, it's gone down a lot. It's now bouncing back but still below the peak of pre-pandemic, but it's forecasted to, to increase still pretty rapidly after that. But it would be interesting to see the impact of the pandemic on work practices, because what you were mentioning about yourself, there's always the danger of, you know, when I study these things, I, I come to it with a very sociological mindset. I, I don't come with a with a mindset of, oh, let's find out who are these bad people who are doing bad things. You know, it's not about blaming the individuals. But when, when I put it out there, a lot of people felt, feel like, oh, no, 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 you know, I'm sticking the finger and I'm pointing the finger at them. But it, that's not how I see it. I would say that the, the things that you say, for example, show that there's a 
well, no, we have built our job practice, our work practices, and also our our sort of family balance, gender gender equality practices around the availability of fast modes such as the car and the plane. And once we build them on them, then we are, of course, we're stuck. You know, we're like, okay, now how can I do that without using the plane? I can't because the the very reason why I started doing it in that way was that the plane or the car was available. And so the only way to change that, it's not up to individual anymore, actually. It's about us collectively trying to change those practices. But that's that's much harder to do. You know, it requires some sort of collective effort, for example, at a firm level. But if you're freelance, as you are, uh, for example, you, you have to work with the work practices of, of, of the institutions you work with. And so as long as they work in a certain way, you're, you're supposed to do it in that way. So it's not up to individual. It's a collective effort, which is what makes it harder. You also highlighted in some previous work how this collective approach had led to some very absurd situations where people were becoming dependent on their cars and it was leading to some form of transport poverty. Could you elaborate on this, please? Yeah, that was a big topic in my research uh, a couple of years ago, like 10, 8, 10 years ago. And I was looking at specifically who would be the people who, if we increase fuel prices, for example, there's always this, I mean, we talked about the gilet jaune, but there's always this argument, no, there are some low-income people who are very reliant on their cars and they cannot deal with with higher fuel prices or higher car prices because they're struggling already. They're struggling with the cost of cars. And so I was always interested to say, okay, how many of them are there? Can, can we make some indicators? Can we count them? Can we say who are they are? Can we say something about how, how the prices would impact them? So I did a lot of work on, on that, which linked to the whole transport poverty debate. And, and there wasn't much interest, to be honest, back then for this topic, because it was like 2014, 2016, and all prices were low. And so I even had sometimes some feedback where people say, oh, yeah, but all prices are low. Why, why are you worrying about, you know, increased fuel prices? They're low now. And I always thought that was so short-sighted because, I mean, they're low now, but we all know they, they jump back in a few years. And, and they did. And now I think there's there's a lot more emphasis on these questions at the EU level with you know realizing there's the energy poverty and then there's a transport element to it and that we need to know more about it. Yeah, so I was pleased but also a bit annoyed by this development because now I don't have really have time to work on that topic because I'm working on aviation and I, and I get demands, oh, can you do this and that? And I have to say no. But yeah, it's, it's good that there's been more interest for that. So if you had a uh, magic wand, how would you design sustainable transports? Oh, uh, You told me before we started recording that you were not so good at solutions, but uh, this is my challenge for you today. Yeah. Like what would be like the first thing that would come to, to your mind now? Yeah, I, I'm probably going to disappoint you because I'm really not. I, I find it hard to, to, to start from the ideal and, and, and then work it back, sort of backcasting. Other people are more psychologically inclined to do that. I'm more like, I'd start from the present situation, which is so locked in. And how can we start to unravel it, to, to unlock it? And I think maybe one of the, I've, I've come to realize that one of the weak points of the car system is space, urban space, public space, that cars are reliant on us giving to them so much public space for free, parking space and so on. And if we start to take some of that back, then people are not so keen on traveling by car from A to B because then it takes ages to find a parking space. But then as a policymaker, you're not reelected. 
Yeah, yeah, to some extent. But we see some efforts in that direction and we can certainly start and change things because a lot of these things are really inbuilt into our laws. So, for example, when we build buildings, there is typically something called minimum parking requirements. So we say for, for a certain amount of flats, you, the builder, you will need to provide a certain amount of car space. And we don't leave that to the market, you know. We don't leave it to, to them to decide, oh, it makes sense for me to provide 100 or zero or whatever. We really make regulation for them to provide that parking space. And if we start to change those things to say, for example, as they've done in Berlin, they now say, no, it's up to you. Now you can decide how many parking spaces you provide with the building. Or we turn the principle around as in um, in London, they, ha- they don't have minimum parking standards, they have maximum parking standards. So they say, okay, you don't have to be- build parking spaces, you can build them if you want, but up to a certain number and not more than that. What we do at present is the opposite. We say, oh, you have to build at least those, if you, if you want to build m- uh, many more than that, you can. So if we start to change those things which are a bit hidden into the you know the machinery of regulations and how we go about it if we stop expanding motorways or things like that if we stop making things worse worse basically and then maybe we have a chance that we can't start to unravel this thing and that's maybe one of the the entry points one of the easier ones if you take car parking space away you, you get a backlash but if you use that space for something else, you also get a lot of support, I think, uh, depending. Uh, and there are good strategies how to do that. So I think definitely an area where we've seen a lot of change, positive change. Yeah, many, many cities are, are now uh, going into doing some some areas with uh, low parking spaces and uh, really nicer for people to walk in or to use their bikes and, and so on. And that makes a the city also way more livable, which at the end of the day is also what people look for. Maybe they will fly there, but then they are happy to walk inside the city instead of uh, instead of having to use their car all the time. So it's about the process, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. We have to find strategies more than anything because I think there's a lot of agreement on the package of measures that we need to introduce on, on the fact that we need to have several of them at once if we're successful, that there is no uh, silver bullet. But exactly in which sequence we introduce those things in a way that doesn't create a, a huge backlash, I think that's something that we don't know yet as well. Thank you so much, Julio. It's been such an interesting conversation. Listeners of Energetic can still catch on the the others episode on sustainable mobility. There was uh, one back in 2021, so a couple of years ago, on really uh, sustainable transport infrastructure within the, the cities. Another one on sustainable aviation fuels, because uh, I think it's important to know uh, the perspective of all parties, because at the end of the day, we all have one objective in mind, which is make this the planet more livable for us and for children and our grandchildren too. Definitely, yeah. Okay, thank you so much, uh, Julio. And uh, yes, I will put in the show notes your Twitter handle because you always say very interesting and thought-provoking things. And uh, I strongly encourage our listeners to catch uh, up with you uh, on on Twitter and, uh, and, and keep the conversation live. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Energetic. I hope you enjoyed our deep dive into sustainability and the just energy transition with the most inspiring stakeholders. All links and resources are in the show notes. 
Don't forget to subscribe. And if you like this podcast, why not recommend it to a friend or a colleague? To continue the conversation, head on over to Twitter or LinkedIn. Thank you for lending your ears. That's all for this episode. Until next time.